This is a podcast from ABC Radio Overnights. I'm Rod Quinn. It was a devastating time in our country's history. The Black Summer bushfires of 2019-2020 that burned through 24 million hectares of land. And more recently, there have been some terrible bushfires in northern Victoria. We heard many stories about the tragedies that these fires caused, but something we didn't hear as much about is how it affected Aboriginal heritage sites. Many were destroyed, and it has led to a nationwide movement to better include traditional owners in bushfire management and prevention. A joint management plan with Yorta Yorta Nations and Parks Victoria is among the ventures that have set out to do exactly that. The importance of including traditional owners was further highlighted during the bushfire inquiry that was held following the devastating tragedy. One of the topics among those recommendations that gained a lot of interest was cultural burning. Here to explain that process and to talk about other matters to do with the bushfires and cultural heritage is Ralph Hume. Ralph, a very good morning. Welcome to the program. Morning, Rod. How are you? I'm, I'm very interested in this topic because we do hear a lot about it. But let's start firstly with your country. Where is your home? What is your country? Uh, yeah, well, I am a uh, Yorta Yorta man from along the Murray River system. Uh, my my family group is from around the uh, Achuka area uh, on Dungala on the Murray River. I work for Parks Victoria and Yorta Yorta Nations as a ranger team leader in Barma. Being a traditional custodian of the land... Can you tell us what was lost in your area, the area that you know best, during those fires and just the impact on you and on your people? The recent little fires that we've had through the Lower Goulburn area has impacted it on a very significant part of our country. Um, it's along Guyala is the, the uh, our word for the Goulburn River that has a high density of cultural heritage sites uh, from artefact scatters to scar trees to traditional burial sites. The way that these uncontrolled fires uh, come about is impacting on our cultural heritage sites, especially our old red gum trees by basically burning them out and, and, mm. and destroying uh, hundreds and thousands of years of traditional mm. history and knowledge and tangible knowledge. How old are those trees, do you think? Oh, look, some of the trees that are still standing can be, you know, up to a couple of hundred years old. Um, and then there's also some of the trees um, uh, that are laying on the ground that can be a few hundred years older uh, than them, you know. But on an average, it's, yeah, it's, yeah we're looking at, you know, yeah, three to four hundred year old trees how, um, at a minimum. How important are those trees to you and the people of that area? Why are they so important? Uh, Biola, the red gum, is uh, a very uh, endemic species to the Murray River system uh, here along uh, Yorta Yorta country. Uh, it is a tree that is used for a variety of ways for our people. One of the main things that our, our old people used uh, the tree for is to actually cut a traditional uh, canoe out of. Mm-hmm. And these canoes were actually used within the Guyala and Dungala, the Murray River and the uh, Goldman River system as as vehicles to yeah. uh, traverse the waterways. Yeah. And does that still go on, or is that no longer part of you know modern traditions? Um, it's not so much part of modern traditions, but there is there is cultural practices that are still in place, um, and the teaching of these knowledge systems to our younger generations to preserve to preserve um, 
that knowledge uh, has been passed down. Uh, myself, I was very fortunate to learn um, off two particular men up in my own country here, which was um, Uncle Wally Cooper and Uncle Sandy Atkinson, who were great uh, canoe makers. Um, and I definitely had the privilege of learning from them how to traditionally make our canoes and prepare and, and cure the actual bark. It's quite a, a long process. Yeah. Tell me about the scar trees. Tell me about why that's so important and what that means. It's a tangible part of our our history. You know, these trees are in the landscape and these um, it, it's it's a physical presence of, you know, our ancestral people um, and their presence along the river. Um, some of these trees are registered, um, but a lot of these sites in particular and these trees along the Murray River system and the Goldman system have never actually been registered. Uh, so it is important that um, we look at how how we register them. Yeah. And the opportunities has come about once again, you know, with with the uh, the recent fires along the lower Goldman section is that it's opened up country and we've looked at and we've found, you know, we've looked at country and we've found quite a few scar trees within there. So now it's a process um, since the fires stopped um, that the team, my team will go back in there and actually look at how do we then preserve and register these trees along the river system. So just explain the idea of registering not only trees but areas uh, in that part of the world. Uh, so, yeah, there's a process um, uh, and there's a, a there's a national register and there's a state register uh, for uh, Victoria. So basically, what happens with our team is we go out, we observe country, and we look at how we read country. We'll determine what sort of sites are around, and then it's a process of we're GPS mapping them out. We're doing spatial data um, and recording these systems through ACRIS and going onto a state register that looks at registering and preserving uh, Aboriginal cultural heritage sites through Victoria. Yeah, so some of the problems seem to be about these unregistered sites. I mean, it's a, such a vast area. Can you ever register everything that you want uh, to be designated to be part of the cultural heritage? Only when we come across it. I mean, look, there's, like you were saying, there's a large... Um, space uh, that we could never ever register everything but as we come across it we document it we register it and we do our best to preserve uh, these cultural heritage sites uh, within our region. So can any of these things actually be replaced? I mean you can plant new trees but that's very different to having a tree that's two or three or four hundred years old by merely planting new ones. Can any of these areas be replaced this cultural heritage? No, not at all. Yeah, this this is, like I said, this is a remnant of tangible history of my ancestral people that lived along the river. You know, this is the physical stuff that, you know, um, that once it's gone, it's gone forever. Um, and so that's why it's, you know, it's a, it's a real key point for myself and the team to do what we can to preserve it, not only from an aspect of fire, um, but uh, uh, in all aspects of how we then preserve cultural heritage, whether it be from, you know, wood cutting. Uh, wood cutting is a, um, a very ongoing, much an ongoing issue up here. Um, we have a lot of people uh, falling uh, red gum for firewood. 
um, and some of these red gums that uh, these individuals are illegally taking wood out of are um, cultural trees and very significant trees. So it's not only fire that we're looking at yeah. the means to protect these trees, but yeah, a, a range of issues. And, and it can never be replaced. It's mm. thousands of generations of knowledge that can be gone in a blink of an eye. So these would be national parks, I'm guessing, though. Why is it that uh, beyond bushfires, they're disappearing? Are people going in and cutting them down illegally? Yes, this is, um, uh, when I was referring to the, the firewood trade, this is uh, uh, definitely an illegal right. uh, operation from individuals coming in to the national parks and state parks and removing timber. And it is, it's, a, it's an offence. It's a criminal offence as well. Our guest is Ralph Hume on Country This Morning. Just explain for us, for those of us who don't know, what traditional fire methodology is that you're talking about this is that the same as cultural burning or how do you manage it it is a, a cultural burn a, a traditional fire methodology is a practice that's been going on in this country for thousands of generations you know and it's and it's part of a, um, a knowledge system uh, that exists in this country for thousands of generations as well it's been able to read and understand your own country and that may vary from the red gums on my river to the coastal country, but it's how Indigenous people put fire into the landscape to maintain this country. This country is forged on two things, fire and flood, and the Indigenous people of, of Australia used fire as a tool to maintain country. We try to implement a burn regime uh, primarily in the cooler months. We have low impact fires. Um, we have what we consider a cool burn. So to basically understand how a cool burn works, when I was being taught um, from my senior fire practitioners in understanding fire, our, our trees have basically grown up with, with Australia and the fire regimes of Indigenous people in this country. So if you look at a gum tree, you look at the bottom half of it, that bottom half, that first couple of metres, is always really gnarly and hard and very thick bark. You know, the next three to four metres of that gum tree is very slim, slender and very smooth bark, depending on what tree it is. And then you've got the canopy, the beautiful big open canopies. We can burn with a flame height up to that metre, that two metres within them trees. And, you know, that's, and that's not too bad. These are low, cool impact fires. Um in the landscape it's when the fire starts getting into the next two to three meters that's a little bit you know it's a little bit iffy mm. um you, you your fires are too hot but when that fire is reaching up into that canopy and it's actually destroying that canopy and destroying the refuge for all our insects and our birds and also destroying the canopy to, that protects the the lower story levels from the sun is basically breaking law. So it's understanding that, you know, we can't put these heavy, hot, big fires in, into our country because our, our country, and especially around here, is a very dry climate and we need that shade to protect our country. Um, so what we do is we try to put low-intensity cool burns in at certain times of the year. These are later in the months, uh, in towards the winter months, 
or depending on what country it is, it might be earlier into the to the spring months. But that's how we ideally like to put fire into the landscape. So back two, three, four hundred years ago, five thousand years ago, what happened if a fire got out of control? How was that managed? Basically, you know, there wasn't really, there was no infrastructure as we see it today uh, with the build-up. So a larger scale of fire um, could be implemented into the landscape. But you're looking at a regime where there's a whole network of patchwork sort of burning across the country. So this can, you know, be anything from, you know, a large area to, you know, 10, 12, 20 sort of acres sort of thing. So you've got these buffers that are already in place. So there was Mm. never any really large, well, not large scale burns. There is some evidence regarding the burns and through carbon dating and bits and pieces that they've found that there wasn't any major burns like the mega fires that we've had over the last couple of years, that sort of fire regime actually never really existed uh, pre-contact uh, in this country. It's only over the last, you know, 80, 90 years that we really sort of, our environment out, out, out in the landscape has changed that much that we have heavy fuel loads. We have not managed the environment and the country properly and we're starting to get these mega fires mm. that you know we really struggle as emergency services we really struggle to to maintain and control so what's the major difference do you think between say hazard reduction which is what we tend to do these days and the cultural burning that you're talking about one of the main issues is that traditional fire methodology puts indigenous people back into the landscape it's re-establishing Indigenous knowledge systems um, and it's um, activating communities to actually take part um, in preserving, you know, uh, their, their own country. A lot of burns, when it comes to prescribed burns from organisations like DELP and Parks and Melbourne Water, um, have already be, always been in-house. Traditional, that concept of traditional fire methodology is only really traditional fire methodology when Indigenous people are have their boots on the ground yeah. and play an active part in it. You know, it's a, and it's sometimes it's re re-establishing knowledge systems, and and sometimes it's actually uh, continuing knowledge systems. So it's, but it hasn't happened uh, in the past for a long, long time. But these days, there's actually a big push, and it's valued. Um, that Indigenous knowledge systems on how we implement fire mm. into the landscape. And it's starting to be starting to become a bit of a, a more common thing, which is yeah. a really good thing to see. So is there much Indigenous involvement in the country fire authorities and services like that? Do you think it's important that the CFAs of Australia reach out to Indigenous people or Indigenous people join up as well? Personally, I can only speak for experience around the Achuka area and the area that I live in. Um, and I know the CFAs have um, done a lot of work in, uh, you know, a lot of our CFAs around the area will fly the Indigenous flag at the front. Um, they have a reasonably good membership of Indigenous people. And at the end of the day, I mean, organisations and the volunteers um, from CFAs, I mean, we, we, we would honestly be at a loss um, if we didn't have them putting in the hard work that they do year after year and week after week. But 
we do have yeah a good a good relationship and uh, a good working uh, community relationship with definitely CFAs. Yeah. So one of the main differences, I suppose, between two, three, four hundred years ago and earlier and now is the number of towns and villages that we have around the country. How has that affected the fires and affected, you know, the idea of cultural burning that you wouldn't be able to do now what might have been done hundreds or thousands of years ago because there are so many built up areas? It is built up areas um, that do restrict the way we can implement a fire methodology, but it doesn't mean that we can't put burn regimes. I've seen um, some of the work, um, you know, in the inner parts of Melbourne, in the eastern parts of Melbourne, that, um, uh, some work that people like uh, Uncle David Wanden and, and some of the Wurundjeri people are doing uh, in there. And they're small-scale burns with the same ideologies and the same methodology in place as larger cultural burns, but um, obviously out in our rural areas, we have a little bit more space um, to conduct conduct larger sort of scale burns. But we're also finding that some of our pastoralists and some of our farmers and, and that sort of thing are, are, are themselves looking at the value of um, Indigenous fire methodology on their private properties, mm. which is taken up uh, at the moment, yeah. So one of the things that the inquiry into the Black Summer bushfires recommended was that there be a closer association between local government, state, territories, uh, fire departments with Indigenous fire and land management. Have you seen that happening because of the recommendation, which I know, uh, you know, that the fires were, were a couple of years ago now, but that was tabled 14 months ago. Has that recommendation been followed? Obviously, in some parts more so than others. Um, like I said, with the departments uh, and the organisations that I work through, through Parks Victoria and Yorta Yorta, we have some really strong advocates at, at the centre of it. We have some um, ICs, some incident controllers that uh, value not only cultural heritage, but that knowledge and are really setting a precedent here um, in the northern area of, of Victoria uh, to make sure that happens. Um, I'm not sure that it's happening everywhere, but I know that it is growing. It is. How difficult is it to teach this cultural burning, this methodology of uh, containing fire? And is it being passed down to the next generation just as it was passed down to you? It's something that comes um, slowly, or it came slowly for me. Um, I was fortunate enough not only to have it present and the concepts of, of burning present as a, as a, as a young man um, and to learn techniques, but um, as I started to progress through my career. I started off as a, a project firefighter for Melbourne Water. Um, and I looked at the way that we were reacting to uh, fires within our, our water catchments and uh, fuel reduction burns that were set up. And, and it, it didn't sit easy with me. Um, so over the years, I've been involved with an organisation called the National Indigenous Fire Stick Network. They're a, a national organisation that holds knowledge from Indigenous people from all over Australia. They run annual workshops. Um, they obviously haven't run one in a year or so because of the COVID, but um, the sharing of knowledge and practice um, throughout Vic Victoria and Australia is is something that's grown in leaps and bounds in the last 10 years that I've been involved with them. 
You know, I've had the privilege of going up to Cape York and communities up there in Widgewidgel and looked at savannah burning and burning on the edges of sort of rainforest. You know, we've looked at going down around uh, coastal New South Wales and looking at how we implement uh, fire methodology uh, into that coastal space. Um, and also here, you know, uh, in my own country, um, uh, burning red gums, it's, it's, Every country burns differently and understanding and sharing knowledge with other mm. um, fire practitioners, practitioners across the country is something that's, you know, helped me build a greater knowledge. And, and once again, you know, this knowledge is uh, stuff that we're passing back to our own communities and our own children and also, you know, reestablishing some of these um, old people that, you know, they used to mm. burn around camps and missions and stations you know as as younger men and women that you know uh, hold you know small jigsaw puzzles pieces of, of fire regime that you know it's yeah it's, yeah it's amazing how was that knowledge passed on though from community to community country to country long before the modern methods of communication oh it's 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 a practical knowledge it's hands-on it's being on country and listening and looking and reading country with your elders and with these knowledge holders, not necessarily all of them are elders too. There's a, there's some great knowledge holders that are, are young and upcoming uh, individuals in our communities right across Australia. But being present and being able to read country is vitally important into how we actually mm. implement the fire into the landscape. Um, and that's the way it was done. You know, it's, these are age-old practices. The whole landscape of Australia has evolved around Indigenous fire. Um, so it's it's hands-on, oral learning, hands-on practice uh, that you can't replace. Ralph, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for talking to us. My pleasure. And that was Ralph Hume, Indigenous Cultural Development Officer at the Yarra Rangers Council, our very special guest on Country this morning. Overnights with Rod Quinn on ABC Radio. Radio.